This is Counterculture with Marie Busky. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Chick Radio. Welcome back to Media Matters here with Counterculture with Marie and Marty on RCR. This is one of those mornings this morning, Marty. I can just, everything is, it's been a big week and a big weekend. And here we are the middle of the week and I'm still sort of betwixt and between. Are you find is the sun shining uh, down in the gay bay? The, the sun is shining. The sun yeah. is shining down in the bay. And it's been quite interesting. I am definitely feeling a glimmer of hope. Mm. And you know when you've been under a, a dark cloud for six years and yeah. then all of a sudden it's you sort of peeking out and you're thinking, oh, could I actually pop out there without being rained on? Yeah, can I start thinking about other things for a change? I know. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people who didn't vote for National but were surprised at, at how pleased they were to to wake up with a new prime minister. And, and I've found my feelings about Christopher Luxon have become more positive as he moves mm. from campaigning into a more prime ministerial state mm. of, well, let's bring everything back together and get on with the work. I think a lot of New Zealanders are looking forward to getting on with the work rather than fighting each other. It's like as a nation we've had autoimmune disease where the body just attacks itself and that makes it sick. Yeah, yeah, Mm. definitely. And they're all now going through the changeover at the moment. You know, there are some of the things when you actually step back from the weekend and you actually look at some of the achievements, this election did throw up some really groundbreaking achievements for a number of reasons. The longest standing female MP ever in New Zealand history, Nanaia Mahuta, was rolled by the youngest ever Mm. uh, new member of parliament with Maipi Clark. And obviously the big one was Winston coming back, bringing eight, well, eight of them total off the list back into the house, regardless of how things shape out with the specials that come in and whether or not he will be required for the formation of a government. I said it on Saturday and I'll say it again. I don't think people really realise how amazing, how groundbreaking that is that New Zealand first got across the line without a candidate, first time ever, and not only just across the line, six and a half percent, eight candidates, boom, straight yeah. in. That is massive. That is huge. And the amount of work and effort required for them to achieve that from New Zealand first, I actually think goes to show you the, a the experience and the absolute stickability of Winston Peters and Shane Jones especially, that when that party was decimated after the end of 2020, they, you know, they didn't go anywhere. And he said that. I mean, he said that when he didn't retain his seat and they didn't retain their power in Parliament, he's like, we're not going anywhere. And boy, you know, you've got to take him at his word. I know that initially people were disappointed that it wasn't more decisive on the night that they would have been needed. But all the commentators that I'm seeing so far are actually pretty much alluding that once the specials come in, there is a high likelihood that, you know, the phone will need to go. And even if it's just on confidence and supply, Christopher Luxon, he's better to have Winston onside than offside. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I mentioned this on uh, a political panel we did at the start of the week. There's been a, a real rollback in tone from New Zealand's media that reminded me of that Simpsons episode where Kent Brockman says, I, for one, welcome our new insect overlords. 
except for um, yesterday's New Zealand Herald, where Thomas Coughlin um, just interviewed his keyboard. And this uh, just shocked me because I know, you know, I know how the sub-editing process works in newspapers. I just can't imagine how he got this story past the sub-editors, where his intro, it was headlined, Nat's New Recruits, and then just the, the intro was, New Zealand First is looking to spook National into making early concessions before special votes have been counted, but National Leader Christopher Luxon has signalled he might be ready to call the party's bluff and wait for the final results on November the 3rd. And he then goes on to write a story that has none of those things in it at all. Luxon said, look, I'm, I'm not going to play the negotiation out in public, which became he batted away suggestions he could be prepared to offer Winston Peters the Speaker's role in return for New Zealand First support. There was no mention about New Zealand First asking for the Speaker's role. Then he doubled down a few paragraphs later and said, New Zealand First is looking to spook National into making early concessions, playing on the party's fear it will have to come crawling back to the negotiating table after special votes are tallied and the final vote announced on November the 3rd. Now, at no point did any New Zealand First candidate say they were afraid they were going to have to come crawling back. As I said, it's just... Cochlin um, interviewing his keyboard. Yeah, I mean, the quote from Shane Jones was, um, Jones would not discuss negotiations, but said it was a little like making a hungy. Get the stones red hot before you cook the tucker. He also urged patience and to wait for special votes to be counted. Yeah, and he basically said, I'd encourage everyone basically to look at our manifesto, obviously. Those issues have been very important to the party since its inception, but these matters will all be teased through when the caucus speaks, Jones said. So yeah, I guess we're not over the gaslighting from the media yet. And, uh, you know, they seem to be the media party that's trying to prevent New Zealand first or, or start a headwind against them being part of the government. You know, another thing I said earlier, earlier in the week is I wonder whether Winston Peters let a little bit of hubris uh, overcome his better judgment when he um, basically said to Jack Tame, look, I, I want to make a point of being broadcasting minister now, it's not going to be good for you because after that, the storm really started. That's when, you know, we were saying, look, we've read the same article written about 30 times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's part of the reason why they've actually blown in that the concept, the trial balloon of Peter's as speaker because that's the one position they can stick him in to shut him up. It's the he only reason not, they want I, him there. I don't, he wouldn't want to be a speaker. No, not in a million years. Not, a, yeah. not in a million years he, he wouldn't want to do it. In fact, role of speaker wouldn't suit Winston Peters. This yeah. is in from uh, One News. Uh, New Zealand First Leader Winston Peters wouldn't suit the speaker of the role in Parliament, he said. Sir David Carter, former National Party MP and Speaker of the House, told Breakfast uh, yesterday, the job of speaker is to be completely apolitical and to be there to make sure Parliament functions. In fact, it's probably the most important position in New Zealand's democracy once Parliament gets underway. It's speculation that he's been offered it, but if he has, it wouldn't suit Winston Peters. He's right. It wouldn't suit Winston Peters. And why would you go through all that work to get your party back across the line to be stuck into a position where you can't do and or say anything? Yeah, we're well, politically neutral. I mean, yeah, he he enjoyed success because he's not politically neutral on on an issue, particularly. You know, we're talking about the COVID response, I guess, where all other MPs have either been neutral or for what Labor did. Yeah. 
Yeah. So uh, maybe it just suits the media that that he's defanged in that way. But oh, I'm sick of the media behaving this way. And I think, I think they're starting to understand how sick of them behaving that way most New Zealanders are. It does interest me. There was, of course, the uh, pearl clutching, the expected pearl clutching after the election. Uh, I mentioned it with Karina and Di the other day. I mean, Chanel Lal, honestly. And then also Ali Mao and Paula Penfold. Well, of course, they're never going to be particularly pleased with the results. I mean, let's face it. I, I read Chanel Lal's uh, column. I sort of, if I can avoid doing it, I normally do. But just, you know, again, talking about misinformation, but never quite getting around to saying what the misinformation is. We've got the world and data. The latest figures from them are for August, which has New Zealand's excess death rate up to 16% above where we'd expect it to be, which is excess death so stable that, you know, a 5% increase is a significant thing that requires urgent attention. 16%? And, you know, all the while, the government's been sitting on data that shows all of these health problems segmented by whether people are unvaxxed or vaxxed mm. and they're not releasing it. Mm. What does that tell us? Exactly. And also, do you think that there is a feverishness now from this group of people who took that immortal line that, you know, they will be the single source of truth, you know, if it is true if it comes from us, and they've gone and taken that and run with it, and they're actually now believing the golden lie? Well, I don't know whether they believe it, but they know that they're in in the crap if the facts start getting in the way of their good story. Mm. It's easy enough to dispel misinformation, particularly for people who are a bit adversarial or oppositional like we are, I guess, where, I mean, I've said before, I, I hope and pray that I'm wrong about the thing, the conclusions that the data has led me to make. I'd like nothing more. And I would uh, go, oh, yeah, I guess I got a bit, bit carried away there. Oh, well, that's good. The other night I went down to Central Hawke's Bay. I was asked to speak at a Rotary meeting. And I haven't done anything like that for a wee while. They wanted me to come down and talk about um, culture and politics. Right. I mean, this is a Rotary Group meeting in Central Hawke's Bay. So you can draw the conclusions, join yep. the dots of the people that were there. And they were... Lovely group. And these are the, and I said to them in the in the talk last night, you know, you are the pillars of this community. You are the foundations. Of they the really people. are, you're the, yeah. you, you're the ones, you're the doers. You go out there, like they had an arborist project that they were talking about. They obviously do as a community project. They were organising uh, a project that they were going in uh, to the prison at Mangaroa and seeing what was happening there. The questions they were asking were really engaging. The person that invited me, you know, really wanted me to, he said, look, they, these are really good people, really great people, but they subsist on a diet of legacy media. Yeah. So they've only been fed one side of the story. He said, can you sort of potentially show them the other side? And I said, of course, but you've got to realize that when you are talking to people like that, that 
you've it's baby steps, you know. I mean, as Lindsay Perigo said, you know, one does not want to spook the horses. Yeah. And so I talked about woke and the history of woke and where it came from and critical social justice and what that looked like and how that then moved into the current New Zealand context. And I used uh, the two things that I used were gender education currently in our schools because a lot of them are parents and grandparents. So they're starting to see that now. And that's the one thing that has popped out post-COVID that has been in a lot of people's faces and they uh, where did this come from? So we talked about that. And then we also talked about the rise. A lot of them were really interested in the rise of uh, Māoridom into Pāti Māori and also this change in Māoridom because they haven't seen necessarily this radical shift. Rodney, you brought it to my attention a couple of days ago. I've been listening to it. Uh, Rodney on Real Talk interviewed the wonderful Elizabeth Rata again. And, mm. oh... That blew my mind. Oh, honestly, listeners, you need to, this is probably one of the most important interviews I believe Rodney has ever done. She so eloquently and beautifully Bentley. described the radicalization of thought of not only current Māori elite, how we ended up with the current Māori elite, and how the Treaty of Waitangi has been reimagined to and it is utterly powerful and I, I just you really do you really should listen to it if you have yeah just there. the process by which um Richard Preble had told Rodney Hyde that he was having trouble getting the state services legislation or so, I think it was that right uh across the line and uh Jeffrey Palmer said oh no problem and just inserted, you know, none of this will contradict the principles of the treaty. And Richard Preble said, well, what does that mean? He said, well, it doesn't mean anything. That's the great thing. They didn't define it, and so someone else defined it for them. Yeah. And yeah. And, and, they, and as she said, it only took a couple of activist judges and a few academics to say, well, this is how it is, and everyone just nodded their heads, went along with it, yeah, and they were no off one questioned it. And, and there's no one's really pointing out the dangerous combustible mix that we've got with, I guess, most New Zealanders increasingly. And I mean, this is certainly true of me. I think it's true of a lot of people. So much of what's causing us problems at the moment are based on lies. You know, whether it's that we can um, make the weather better if we pay money to the government or get bankers to print debt for our grandchildren, whether putting a Maori elite giving them the power of veto over everything and passing race-based laws is not racist. And, you know, John Tamahiri needs to be called out a bit more on some of the stuff he's saying. I, I heard him quoted as saying, you know, th there would be violence and shutting down of our major cities if there is a referendum on co-governance. Well, he might need to buckle in because that's one of the things that all three parties, National Act and New Zealand First in one form or another, loosely agree on. Yeah, well, I mean, I said at the, at the start of the week, I, I don't think we can start looking at anything like a referendum on co-governance co before we take a lot of the heat out of it and, and talk about our common interests rather than regarding Maori as a different species. And, you know, those folks you spoke to at Rotary, we've got to remember, these are the people that this elite Maori leadership have been saying, we can't wait till they die, basically. Yeah. And, and, you know, John Tamahiri said this on election night and said 
there's a shift intergenerationally occurring with Te Pāti Māori's Māori voter base mostly between 18 and 45 years old. The biggest cohort of voters in the, in the country are the 900,000 Pākehā over 50. So we've got to keep our eyes on the prize. I thought, where have I heard that before? I remembered uh, another historical figure had said, when an opponent declares, I will not come over to your side, I calmly say, your child belongs to us already. What are you? You will pass on. Your descendants, however, now stand in the new camp. In a short time, they will know nothing else but this new community. Good old Adolf Hitler. And you're right, there is a lot of heat that needs to come out of this. One of the questions, one of the, I, uh, gosh, you, I, I figured I must have done okay because the Q&A went almost as long as the talk. And one of the questions that came out, which was a fantastic question that I couldn't have the time to answer because it was just too big, but it was around, so we'd been talking about, I explained to them the oppression matrix. So I said to them, look, in critical social justice, everyone is divided out away from class and into power. And I said, I hate to break it to everybody in this room, but you are all cis white men. And as far as the presses are concerned, you guys are at the top of the totem pole as, as the biggest devils and demons in terms well, of oppression. Well, most violent, according to Marama Davis's. Yeah. And so anyway, one of the question, this chap was really concerned about the disaffected Māori youth that we are currently in New Zealand and they, they're dis disconnected from their communities and and they are at home and they're not working. And he said, how do we get these people? How do we lift these young people into a place that is um, part of community and society. Now, if you were Don John Tomahiri, he loves those people. He loves those young people because mm. those are those are little automatons to be captured and switched on uh, into the cult. Yeah, those those well, those are the foot soldiers at the front of the battle at the, at the battle lines. He he wants them. Yeah, well, that that was a, another point uh, Takuta uh, Ferris made. Um, who's a new uh, Te Pāti Māori MP, he said, our people are on their feet. Young people are educated. They're aware of why and how inequities exist. And it is the job of Te Pāti Māori to continue to educate our people so they can all move together to build into our people an ability to stand up and be present when elections come around. So the first bit, our people are educated now, sounds great. But the thing about educated people is, they don't move like a school of kahawai. You know, they go off in all different directions and do all sorts of different things. Uh, and so, yeah, what they're talking about isn't in education. It's indoctrination. Yeah, if you want your um, animal farm analogy, it's it's when Squealer takes the, uh, the puppies away and trains them up to be attack dogs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's exactly It's really what it sad is. because I remember reading a quote from a young Māori woman saying, the government wants me to fail. You know, there's that idea, Pākehā want, want us to fail. It's like, I want to see you succeed beyond your wildest dreams and being healthy and being happy and being in harmony with the world. And, and I think that, you know, when I talk about taking some of the heat out of the discussion, you know, just to be really clear, it's it's not anger at Māori, it's anger at the lie. If we're debating on the basis of lies, we can't move forward. No. It's something Elizabeth Rata said in her interview with Rodney, and it's at the principles of social justice. When you can control language, you can control thought. 
Yeah, and and she was saying that she'd spoken with activists in the '90s who'd said that, and and how you know expressions like indigenous and ethnicity had kind of come to the forefront in the '90s as part of that you know neo-Marxist understanding that if you can control language, uh, you can control everything, and and it's what you know, George Orwell alluded to very strongly in 1984. Mm. A lot of memory holding. Yeah, and it just shows you how long this has been going on. Actually, you know, another example, she said, it's when went Pākehā went from a little P to a big P. It was in that time. And and you look at what's happening now. Sataku Ferris is the new uh, MP for Tita Tonga. Now, that is the South Island, for those who are not aware of geography. Now, he beat a Titakatani. In talking to... Karina and Di, you know, he's as Karina said, Māori are just absolutely fed up with Labour. They know that they weren't getting what they needed from Labour. Labour has let them down like they've let so many others down. But unfortunately, this is the one issue with the Māori seats, is when you have been so let down by that particular group, the void often needs to get filled. So that need for change is there. The change that was on offer to them was to Party Māori. Now we have seen this swing in Māori seats before, and the last time it happened like that was way back. I think it was in the late nineties, early two thousands, with New Zealand First. New Zealand mm. First captured about five Māori seats at that time. So it can actually be done, but that really just showed that there is a growing discontent within Māori. And this question that I was asked, he said, well, what what did I think was something that could happen? And I said, well, there is a disconnect. There is a disconnect between particularly Māori youth and, and their roots and their hapū and their people. And the problem being is that disconnection is so diluted now that they are looking for replacements. And the replacements are things like the Waipurita Trust and Te Pāti Māori and activism because that gives them a place to belong. That has become their new tribe. Yeah. And that is dangerous because when you have tribalism at that level, it is almost, they've taken the principles of critical social justice, they have given it a Māori spin, and what you've then created is an ethno-cult, which I think is going to be quite dangerous. And how Christopher Luxon deals with this will be very telling because, as you said, sometimes the man can be a shiver looking for a spine to run up. Well, this boy's going to have to grow some balls of panamo, I think, in order to at least be a handbrake or a strength against this rising voice of uh, radical activism that will be in the house from Te Pāti Māori. And if there is any other reason that he wants to bring New Zealand first into the fold, it could potentially be to have three powerful Māori voices on, on his side of the fence putting their hands up going, Eho, no! Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Winston and Peters, Shane Cam's Jones and Casey very, very well several times. Yeah, he, they, they are the point, the nexus where Māori and Pākehā aspirations can meet is in that, you know, I mean, he grew up dirt poor in Northland in a family of 11 kids, but in a very strong community. And and in the rush to lampoon him, they forget that. Mm. And I, I think that's very significant. He pulled himself up by his bootstraps and uh, he, he knows the formula. He values education, not education in terms of 
our young people are educated now. They know that everything bad that happens to them is someone else's fault. It's Whitey. He sees the enemy more as ignorance and inertia. The mm. nefs on the couch, as Shane Jones has said. And again, I, I do like to look at things through a compassionate lens. So I've I've not I'm always an uncomfortable with with these punishing attitudes to the unemployed or young criminals or even gang members. You know, I mean they do need to be punished, but as I've often said to said to gang members, it must suck being in a gang, does it? Because, you know, if you're in those sort of environments, they're so stressful and everyone's just so careful about what they say. And also, and this is something I've seen in older gang members, especially when they have granddaughters, mm. they think about the horrible, awful things that they've done and regret it bitterly. And often, yeah, they get a, a, a humble, sad demeanor about that. Yeah. And Cam spoke with Kane Warren last week who is the director of the Man Up program. Mm. And he's done a tremendous oh. amount of work in helping gang members transition to wholesome, well-rounded, holistic family lives. Yeah, you know a tree by its fruit. And you can't argue with the results that Man Up gets. And also just this Calvin Davis Worrying that if if people if gang members in prisons went through it, they might join Brian Tamaki's church. It's like, man, that's the least of our worries. the 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 problem is that if they don't get themselves right, they're going to victimise a lot more people, and and often they're going to waste potential within themselves. Mm. If we're going to unpick this, we're going to need to make use of people who have reformed and understood that what they, they were doing was wrong. Yeah, and, and Elizabeth Rata explained that ex the, the reasoning for that so beautifully in her interview because the reason Calvin would have done that is that you can't have a program that is so successful with faith at its heart because at the end of the day, secularism is the new norm and social justice is the new religion. So when you're someone like Calvin Davis, you want to make sure that the thing that they're worshipping is social justice and they're worshipping government. They're not worshipping any other higher spiritual power because that just absolutely disintegrates the lie yeah. Your lie, the lie that you've been telling. So you can't have that. I mean, heaven forbid you actually, you know, have this program go into prisons uh, and be successful and actually rise up uh, all these men to become powerful members of their community because those will be the ones that will rise up and boot you out on your ass and you won't have a job. I think the thing that, and, and I haven't included this when I've been discussing my uh theory about what Kopapa Māori looks like if we bring it more to the forefront of how New Zealand's run. You know, it's rangatira, the chiefs who effectively own everything. It's the tohunga who seem to have metamorphosed into the people booting science out of the school curriculum. It's the tutua, the commoners who remain ignorant and don't have any property rights. The References to Tino Rangatiratanga in Te Tiriti were about conferring the rights of individual ownership on all Māori in the same way as an Englishman's home is his castle. Again, if you look at 
the trickle down from these vast sums of money that have been earmarked for Māori, the trickle down to the tutua makes the uh, trickle down of neoliberalism look like Hooker Falls. And, you know, the, the missing part of the puzzle that I haven't broached is that uh, I think a lot of Māori leaders look at the gangs as their warriors. And there is that, ah, oh, well, you know, the gangs will rise up when the time for the revolution comes. And so when John Tumhiri is talking about setting cities on fire or violence, he's, I think, thinking that the gangs are going to be as stormtroopers, as shock mm. troops. I think it's worth at least bringing that up with them. You know, mm. who do you think is going to be doing all this? Yeah. Your, your academics, Shane Tapo. Old Shane Tapo had an about face. There's a real normalization of of the relationship between burly Maori fellas and uh, effeminate little ginger boys after the election <laughs> in terms of that uh, the normal relationship is that uh, one of them's flushing the other's head down a toilet at school anyway. Yeah, and the, the numbers were all gone from his and, and Chanel's uh, columns. Mm. Yeah, I actually, <laughs> yes. They seem to be be back at the keyboard Mm, Yes, reunited Reunited Anyway, yes, they seem to be reunited with their keyboards Uh, For how much longer one does not know There have been lots of interesting things sort of blowing up And I think this, this could be This for me is one of the headwinds That I think Christopher Luxon will face And it is how does he equalize that back And I think that if he he can use New Zealand first for that because they stoutly like to criticise the lack of quote unquote diversity that he carries on his bench. But you know, so here's another little quirk. I spent a couple of hours on Sunday going through with my highlighter, my highlighter and the election. Um, where's my piece of paper? The electoral website, having a look at different things. Other than the fact that we've got a lot of seats that could swing with specials, Kelvin could be out on his ear because he's only leading at the moment by 487 votes. Penny Henari as well and Tamaki Mikado, he's looking a bit uh, a bit shaky at 495. And with the swing in those Māori seats to Te Pāti Māori, and, uh, and from what I've been hearing on the ground about issues within polling booths, with them running out of special vote papers, so many of the people that turned up to vote uh, weren't on the rolls. Yeah, so they had to to place special votes. So I know John Tamahiri is not, he's going to be like a pit bull with a bone on this one. He's not going to let it go. So it'll be very, very intriguing to see what happens in Titai Tokura and Tamaki Mikado and whether he picks those two up as well and the whole overhang situation. So there is so many moving parts and trying to predict how everything is going to fall between now and then is a bit like a COVID modeler trying to get something accurate at the beginning of the pandemic. So we're not even going to try. Well, I mean, if you want another upside to Labour's absolute routing at uh, the election, I guess it will ease the teacher shortage. (laughs) It (laughs) should ease the teacher shortage. Get back in front of classrooms again. What the most numerous occupation in Parliament, uh, just ahead of union organiser, although National are going to scotch the fair pay agreements. So maybe the union organisers will have something to do there as well. So I have to admit, that was a po- that, look, as an employer, that is a policy uh, of nationals that I am fully on board with. So I really like to see that. So I grabbed nationals list. What I did is I highlighted all the candidates 
on Nationals' list and all the candidates on Labor's list and saw who kept their seats, who didn't keep their seats, who's looking a little bit dodge, what might flip. What listeners, I think, may need to remember is this is based on proportionality. For example, on National, at the moment, National has a proportion of 50 seats, and some pundits are saying that that could drop by one or two after the specials. How that makeup is made up, it is made up by the electoral seats first, and then if you haven't won 50 electoral seats, you then top those up with the list. Okay? Now, what... National wasn't expecting, and I don't think what a lot of people were expecting, is they won 45 seats as it stands currently. Mm. 45 after being, what, 28 Mm. last time? So that's massive. Now, look, I'll be honest with you. I think Tiata too will go back to Phil Twitford. She's only leading that by 30 votes at the moment, the National Girl. That's the one Pacifica candidate that was close to getting in. Mm. There's that other article about concerns new government will lack a voice for Pacifica people. Maybe you should vote a bit differently, just say. Yeah. So that then means that not a lot of candidates on National's list actually make it in. And I have, so so this just gives you a really good idea of how incredible those electorate MPs are. Because so generally what happens is that if they really want to make sure you, you keep your job or you get a job, you are high on the list, right? So that's how these things work. Christopher Luxon, obviously number one. Nicola Willis is number two. Well, she lost her seat. She made a good run for it, but she didn't win it. Uh, Bishop, number three. Retty, number four. Paul Goldsmith, he lost his seat as well. He's at number five. So they need to make sure that, you know, their key people stay. Meanwhile, careering down to the back end of the list, the back of the bus, you know, the ones that may not have been very well behaved, you've got at 57, Sam Uffindale. They tried to sort of smear him towards the end of the campaign, and he stood in Tauranga and won by an 11,000-vote majority. Well, yeah, that's incredible. From number 55 to number 65 on the national list, in all intents and purposes, theoretically, you would think that they wouldn't necessarily find their way back into Parliament. Every single one of them won their electorate seat, number 55 through 65 on their list. Meanwhile, across the fence at Labour, from 55 all the way through to 76, there are only uh, two. Mm. There are uh, Fleur Fitzsimmons in Rongatai, and she's in a battle with the Greens. Well, at the moment, Julian Genta is leading that by 792 votes, and I'm picking Genta will keep that with the way specials have a tendency to Where's Rongatai? Is that in central Wellington? Or? That, yes. And then you've got Reuben Davidson, who kept Christchurch East, Everyone another, else. Another striking example of Kiwi masculine or Labour Party masculinity. Everyone else on that list, gone. Yeah. Gone, John. It was carnage. And so, of course, with that carnage came a lot of MPs that were losing their jobs. And did you hear? So they've been to depart- I mean, you know, because the media are looking for fodder because they there's only so much speculation that one can do with a week of what's going to happen until these v- votes come in in the third. Oh, and so, they haven't been shy of speculating and... <laughs> so over it. Anywho, uh, one of the reporters has been out interviewing incoming and outgoing MPs as they're leaving Wellington because, you know, you've got to fill those column inches, don't you? And one I heard, did you hear Dan Rosewarn? Did you yeah, hear his said, comment? Oh, my Coro Club membership's not working. Oh, yeah, and I'm Crime going from champagne to, champagne to lemonade. 
Yeah. Well, you might have to get off your ass and start working. Well, so I thought, who is this Kozak? I mean, he sounded like a bit of a bloke, you know, and and, yeah. and, if, and I'm picking he's possibly go. one on one, a fairly <laughs> reasonable chap, right? And I thought, well, I, I need to look you up, darling, and see who you love are. The Club Lounge. Yeah, and see who you are because I kind of thought that it's touched on death, touched on death. So anyway, Dan is a very, very good Labour Party man. He has been, he's got some some stickability. He has been hanging around there. He's run for Waimakariri three times, been beaten by Matt Ducey every single time, and he's tried to sort of switch electorates. That didn't work. He's been, had people sort of leap over him. Ex-army captain, so he's been in the military. He look, oversaw the uh, MIQ in Christchurch, so did a good job for Tom Just Thunder, doing that for the MIQ in Christchurch. And then finally, finally, Dan, the man's patience was rewarded in July 20 of 22. He was the next on the list that got brought into Parliament after the departure of Chris Farfoy. He must have thought all his Christmases had come at once, Dan. Yeah. Oh, the he got that crew membership. I've got, I've got the boss's job at last. Yeah. So finally, all that perseverance paid off. Bless. So, do you know what they get paid? These backbench. Is it the, 165K a year? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder yeah. how much they give away. I wonder how many of them have got some sort of charity that they donate to to relieve them of all this burdensome, problematic wealth. I wonder how much Chloe Swarbrick gives away. <sighs> I don't know. Well, she'd be on even more because of um, because you get extra money for committees yeah. and portfolios and stuff. I mean, hundred that, that's the money that you get, and that doesn't include the memberships and the cars and the electoral office yeah, and the, the accommodation allowance and everything else they get, the travel perks. No wonder they want to do it. Crikey! Well, I mean, that's and that's the difference between Labour and National is that National's candidates can actually go out and do something else and often make a lot more money than that mm. with the skills they have and. We do need some people in there with skills beyond teaching and union organising. Not that mm. those aren't noble professions. So speaking of noble professions, Kitty Tapu, consultant of chaos. I, I, I sort of feel looked your at that. Side from I, here. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm just just one of those people. Like when Jacinda Ardern's endorsement came up, I just got this sinking feeling in the pit of my guts. Just like, oh, I don't have to see that person again, do I? I couldn't watch it. Yeah. And Kitty, like Tapu. Kitty Tapu. Yeah. So Kitty Tapu Allen has decided that she's going to best put her skills to use by creating her own consultancy firm to help businesses and organizations navigate through difficult times. Uh, so what I'm wondering is, is, is this actually a consultancy on how to get people grant money? Well, yeah. She's I mean, clipping the ticket. Because she certainly, I mean, she 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 couldn't exactly organise her own chaos out of a paper bag, could she? I mean, I saw you know National are going to scrap Tiaka Faora. Yeah, um, and all three and, parties are agreed on that. New Zealand First yeah, Act National. Then it said Luxon is committed to scrapping the authority and giving its 170 million dollar funding to Iwi instead. I'm not going to say the name of the Iwi because it's unfair to single them out. I remember reading a um, an annual report from one, and it had a SWOT analysis. And one of the threats was the government demands more accountability for the money we get. And I've seen firsthand chairing a health-related board just the graft and waste in those uh, areas. You know, they do some great work, 
But whether that blanket, here's 170 million, is just playing into more of the same in its own way. Mm. And they do, you know, and there are ones that do great work. I know during the flood relief, we in the day job, we had a charity drive to get uh, funds and packs, just yarn packs, knitting packs for people who were really, really stressed, and mm. just giving them some mindfulness to help them out during that time. And uh, we distributed them throughout rest home, marae, uh, community groups within Hawke's Bay, and I travelled back up to Gisborne to check on the parentals just to make sure that they hadn't been washed away in the tide uh, and make sure that they were all good. And I did my phone of friends with all my contacts up there and one of them was the Haora in Tairawhiti and they and contacted them about dropping some stuff off there. And that's the thing, there are some groups that do some really great work. And I and my girlfriend's fairly tapped in with stuff up there and she and I said, right, I want to make sure that these go somewhere where it is actually going to make a difference. She said, I know exactly who I'm going to put you in touch with. Yeah. She said, I mean, there are book. those people. Yeah. They've got boots on the ground, no, big volunteer pace. They know exactly where all their people are, and they were brilliant, utterly mm. brilliant. But that's that's the thing. You want to fund them, but for every one of those, there's one or two that don't operate like that. I would say the solution is less iwi and more hapu. Mm. You know, when I mean, you're talking about marae, I mean, that's hapu. That's it's a a natural level of integrity for Maori society, and I would say humans generally you know we sort of get about 200 people or something you, you don't i think it's up to 800 people you don't really need any sort of government mm. it's kind of self-regulating but once you get beyond that you get favoritism and graft and despotism and also too for those that aren't sort of up onto this hapu is is generally a wider larger family group but that group may be also community so you know hapu in community is that's where the strength lies. And I think many of us, particularly in the freedom space, have created our own freedom hapu. And yeah. a good chunk of the people that were here for the election on Saturday night were my little rabble of locals up and down the street. You know, yeah, hapu. yeah our, our little waghorn hapu. And, you know, we all look out for each other and and we have each other's backs. And, and if the shit were hit to hit the fan anywhere and you need something, we, they're there. And we found that out during Gabrielle. Yeah, well, that, that's where I'm thinking a lot more, rather than bashing away at national politics, I, I have been thinking more about uh, the Papalopoulos generally, and particularly, I guess, my little small section of it, and thinking, well, why not just go around everyone's house and my street and knock on the door and collect some data and not give it a name, not have an online presence, just kind of ask a few questions like, hey, what do we do if the power goes out? What if we? What do we do if the water's no good to drink? You know, what what do we? You know, how how do we manage our food going off? All the things you talked about um, that you, you that the Waghorn Hapu uh, did did so very well, and um, I think it's that kind of thing that will solve the division that that's crept in as governments grown between individual New Zealanders like a cancer. Mm. And uh, you know, if you if you can get I don't know why I keep saying eight families, but it's just the number that pops into my head. Maybe I like it. Maybe it's the Chinese thing of it being a lucky number. But if you get eight families, you can adopt one family that's really struggling. It's like, well, where's a family where the kids aren't doing well, they're hungry, they're having financial... You know, you could say, hey, I'm not happy with that existing in my neighbourhood because I know it's going to cause problems. 
and I'd like to cut those off at a pass. Let's, you know, you could have, you could do all sorts of things. Mm, you can Help, do all sorts do of things. Do a bit of gardening. Yeah, and it's also too having um, having the the strength to just sort of say no. So a lot of these things that we talked about. Again, I'm just going to reference this uh, Elizabeth Rader interview with Rodney Hyde on Real Talk. Go to the app. You know, as she said, she talked about these things are just said and no one's you know stood up and said anything. And bringing back to the meeting that I was at the other night, you know, as I said to them, as Kiwis, we're actually genuinely genuinely nice loving people that want to do the best for other people we're, we're kind we don't want to upset the apple cut we don't want to to create upset or be negative which is also it's one of our most beautiful char- characteristics and one of our greatest strengths but it's also one of our greatest weaknesses well and when, yeah, but, but and when that again, weakness is abused by people in critical social justice that think hmm i'm going to say this in authority, it goes back to what was it, the Milgram experiments. I'm going to, yeah. This is this is what this is, and this is why I believe it is true, and therefore it is true, and this is what you're going to do, and no one sees anything. Yeah, or when utter dolts like James Shaw and Marama Davidson say, "Hey, there's all this money there. We'll be generous on behalf of other people," and and once you uh, you do that, it's just not the same thing. They pretend it is, but. It's it's not the same thing. It horrifies me thinking that there are kids who are going to school hungry in my neighborhood. And I think most people are like that. If, if you said, hey, there's a kid around the corner, they're really struggling, they're going to bed without dinner, it's like, well, let's sort it out. Yeah. And while we're doing it, you know, let, let's mentor them a bit into, well, how, how can we get you making a bit more money? There was there was a um, another bit of keyboard interviewing by Jamie Lynn in the, yesterday's paper, he was talking about benefits being indexed to wages being cut. So, yeah, National Party has promised to decouple benefit increases from wages. And so she's drawn the conclusion by the end of the decade, someone on Job Seeker will be $50 a week worse off under national change, National's changes. Will they, Jamie, or will they get into employment and be $400 better off? Decades a long time. Will mm-hmm. they? skill, get some skills, and have all of this cascading improvement in their life that will see them materially better off than just existing away on on welfare. And again, you look at it through a compassionate lens, the health effect of someone being unemployed is equivalent to smoking two packets of cigarettes a day. It's really, really bad for you. And it's not, so you can get right away from that, oh, these bludgers should work. Yes, it's miserable being unemployed. It's miserable having this terrible self-esteem that comes from being given something and not reciprocating. And that's a central part of Te Maori is reciprocity. You know, then they're saying, oh, you know, our our mana's um, decreasing. Well, it's, you know, maybe it's because you're... You're you're not feeding it and you're not growing it yourself. Yeah, yeah. Mm. On those thoughts, a couple of little positive things out of the news. I've got an inkling of what yours is going to be. <laughs> well, I've got a couple. Go on. Well, the uh, the no vote in uh, the Australian Voice was was positive, and I think in some ways an extreme version of what's happening in New Zealand. And I think a lot of Australians look at New Zealand as a cautionary example of what happens if you 
put these people in charge. I mean, there was a great interview Paul Brennan did yesterday with Tim Willems, I think his, his name is, who uh, runs unshackled.net. You know, there's a 40 billion annual federal spend on Aboriginal issues. Yeah, the same tribal leadership that seems to feather its own nest and thrive on bad stats for the people. One such guy, Noel Pearson, his initiatives had 550 million. And it's, you know, it's interesting to think, well, what have you achieved for that? And so, you know, you've got on the other side, Jacinta Price, who's probably Australia's equivalent of Shane Jones, maybe, says, well, maybe there are some problems in Aboriginal culture that are causing some of their bad outcomes. Maybe we should look at those. And, you know, there are terrible, terrible stats in some of those communities. And I'm always suspicious um, about these people saying, oh, we need a voice in parliament. It's like, well, why don't you focus on education? Same with Māori leaders. Why don't you focus on the fact that only 3% of kids going through decile one schools can read, write, and do maths effectively after 10 years in your unionised Marxist education system? That's the place to look because every bad outcome cascades down from that, whether it's health or imprisonment or domestic violence. And it also, I think, sent a very clear signal that those voices in social justice, which are much louder in Australia than they are here, don't hold the power over the people that they believe they held. Yeah. Despite, I think, uh, the No uh, campaign spent $7 million and uh, the Yes campaign had $100 million. There was a column by Frank Bongiorno, who's a professor, professor of history at ANU College of Arts and Social Sciences, Australian National University. He was crying to his coffee a little bit, but he said that the voters had to accept several propositions. Uh, let's take just two of them. Firstly, do Indigenous people need a further opportunity to speak for themselves? I believe so, but no voters might have taken the view that there were already Indigenous members of the federal parliament able to speak for Indigenous people. I think there are about 20. Uh, secondly, while there are some white Australians still prepared to deny the existence of Aboriginal disadvantage, even those who acknowledge the truth of it needed to accept that the voice would be effective in helping to close the gap. Yeah, given the long history of policy failure in this area, it was a hard argument to make. Now, I often you know, think this, if, if we took away race-based funding, would Māori be worse off? How could they be worse off than over 50% of the prison population? Are they going to be more than that? Mm. The, the educational results going to get worse? Yeah. I think they'd get better. Yeah. The telling step for me on the voice referendum was every single state, including Victoria, the wokest of the woke, uh, voted it down. The only place where it was passed, the yes vote won, was in the ACT, the Australian Capital Territory. And I think that tells you everything you need to know. Yeah, the tide's going. I'll tell you something that blew, maybe I overused the expression, blow my mind. Uh, tell you something else that uh, really surprised me was Simon Wilson wrote a readable column. Well, he acknowledged the lack of omelette after all of the glorious broken eggs, acknowledged that the COVID response and the, the fact that Labour, which had as its brand that it really cared, didn't seem to care if their actions were anything to go by. So, yeah, I'm, I've got good hope for Simon. Um, mm. 
if he if he keeps on this path, he'll. Because I remember he used to write some quite good stuff, and then he just went full baby boomer, thinking about Springbok tour the way a crackhead thinks about their first hit of meth. You know, sort of just chasing that initial heady rush of self righteousness and in ever more degrading ways. But no, he's, he's come good. Mm. Well, it'll be interesting to see how the tone of the media will change now that all of a sudden the teat they have been suckling on could potentially run very dry and a weaning may take place. So, yeah, yeah, it will be intriguing. Well, for me, the happy story was I saw a punter uh, went into the TAB. They were running a $10 million promotion and you had to, uh, at Randwick, they had a big race meeting over there. You had to list the top 12 horses in order correctly. It was a free promotion. It was one of those, I think, they expect no one to win type promotions. And this guy went in, had a quick look. He's, as he said, not particularly scientific, listed as 12 horses, the left, and won. What did he win? $10 million. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Kiwi Punter, <laughs> there you go. Well, my happy story was that Iron Maiden are returning to New Zealand, and I might go and see them. There you go. And you know if there's any Maori musicians listening? I've been waiting in vain for someone to cover Run to the Hills in Māori. Just putting that out there. I reckon it'd go good. I might, Bring I'd Tobias. Tobias of, might do it for us. Of Cora. I reckon Cora would be the band to do it. There you go. Another flash of uh, inspiration I had this morning was suggesting, uh, and, and work with us on this, Media Matters listeners, we should have a New Zealander of the Year, Media Matters, a New Zealander of the Year competition. I think that would be a bit of a giggle. We'll start working on some categories. Think about some categories, actually, guys. If you can think, yeah, a, a Media Matters version of the New Zealander of the Year. So think of some categories, you know, whether it be uh, Alternative Journalist of the Year or uh, Freedom Voice or I don't know. Send us in your uh, ideas. 2057 is the text. Inbox at realitycheck.radio is the email. Defying the memory holding New Zealander of the Year. Linda Wharton, I think, would yeah. be in the running for that. Maybe Kirsten Murphy for all her brilliant open letters she did to Parliament and the police. Yeah, so uh, that, could be, that could be a bit, bit of fun. Watch the space. Watch the space. Mm, definitely. Well, thank you again. A lot to talk about. Yeah, a bit of a frazzled media matters this week, I think, from us just going, ah. I'm so glad it's all over. I know it is. A, it is a little bit of election fatigue, but you know, it's the thing is, is I think you get this heading into this time of year. But the good news is, it will be there is going to be plenty to talk about as we go through the transition with the government, and that will always give us plenty of fodder. And it will be interesting to see. Let's let all of us check the mood and see how things move between now and then. And uh, speaking of mood, speaking of mood, don't disappear because very, very shortly, in fact. As soon as Marty and I are finished here, I am going to be announcing the winners of The Sad Truth About Happiness. We have got some fantastic entries in, and I'll be reading out all of your happiness hacks, and those people will be winning a copy of Gad's new book. So thank you, Marty, and uh, we'll do it all again next week. Thank you. Have a great week, and good luck. Good luck with that competition. This is Counterculture with Marie Buskey. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio.